thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Meet the world's most expensive weapon. You've seen an airplane that's too fat and wings that are too small. Massive cost overruns and bloating red tape. Yet the F-35 has proven to be as troublesome as it is ambitious. There's been an F-35 that has caught on fire on the flight line. The F-35's program's record of performance has been both a scandal and a tragedy. What's going to happen with that airplane is it's going to die a slow and agonizing death. It must be perfect for air combat. Well, no. Look, the F-35 is incredibly expensive, and okay, its development has been long and challenging, but come on, what's the real story here? Is the Joint Strike Fighter just another failed government program? How do we know what to believe in this frenetic era we live in with hyperconnectivity and sensational headlines? Now, we've argued before in this show that the F-35 revolutionizes air combat, but to truly understand the issues, you have to move beyond the sound bites and spend time with a credible expert, someone who has an extensive military aviation background and firsthand experience in the F-35 program. And that's what you're in for on this episode. No announcements, no fluff, just 100 minutes with a former Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot and aviation expert who amassed over 5,000 hours in the F-16, the F-A-18, the Eurofighter, and every model of the F-35 during his extensive career. Forget the headlines and sound bites. You want to know what's up with the F-35? You're about to find out this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. All right, my guest today is Billy Flynn. He is a retired Canadian Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He is a friend of our mutual friend, Scratch. Uh, he's a Canadian. He's a former test pilot. Boy, you're all kinds of things, Billy. Welcome to the show. Jello, thanks for having me here. I'm a bit all over the map, Canadian, American, <laughs> you name it. Thrilled to be here and um, looking forward to chatting today. I am too, because you and I have been working on this for a couple months, and my summer turned upside down with my brother's mishap and a few other things. But when I was introduced to you, like I said, from Scratch, who was our Snowbird guest, and I heard your pedigree, I thought, you know what, we definitely need to talk about the F-35 again, because it seems to be so maligned in the press and on social media. And you've been there, done that, as we'll find out in a minute. So I just thought this could be one of those shows that's, yeah, it's about the topic, but it's sort of about you as well, because you've been there. So with all that said, let's start with you. Give us a little background on where you're from, what you did as far as where you went to school and, and what you did in the military and after the military. And then we're really going to use those experiences to talk about the F-35 a bit more. Well, excellent. Let's start with, and all that I'm going to talk about in my history, it gives me perspective on ultimately what I think about F-35 in this program. 
I'm an Air Force brat. My mom and dad were in the RCAF and they were posted to a base in southern Germany, married in the church there. The fun part of the story is that my dad's second tour as an F-86 pilot was in northern Germany in a a mixed German Luftwaffe Canadian gun uh, training unit. When I was born, his boss came over to celebrate his firstborn son, and his boss was none other than Eric Hartman, the greatest ace of all time, 352 kills. And it's kind of fun trivia. I grew up on Air Force bases, and on Sunday after church, I remember my dad taking us to the hangars where we sat in CF-100s, which is this Canadian odd in the day EW airplane. I sat in the cockpits of Voodoo's. You had to Stace on in episode 101 talking about it. And as a kid, I was around fighter jets, and it's really all I knew. I knew fighter pilots, and I knew they flew things that were fast and made lots of noise. And that's what I determined I wanted to do growing up. My dad was smart enough to get me to go to the military college system. I went to the French Canadian Military College first, and then I graduated from the Royal Military College with a degree in engineering. I always needed a fallback, according to my dad. Mm -hmm. And then my timing was amazing. I went to pilot training, and I was selected as the first CF-18 nugget, as you call it in the Navy, and Canadians call it pipeliner. I was the first kid picked to fly the CF-18 even before it was delivered in Canada. I ended up going through fighter lead-in and then on to the first operational squadron, the first course in the CF-18 in the early 80s. You had Rob Fleck in to talk on episode 104, and Rob Fleck was one of my IPs. And it really sets me up as a fourth-gen baby into an Air Force that didn't have a third-gen fighter. They went from second-gen Voodoo's and Starfighters right up to a fourth-gen F-18s powered by two Commodore 64s. There are things about that early, those early days that really matter as we talk even to F-35. I was there when the tail cracks happened. We were so naive. We'd fly at 25, 35 Alpha in a two-seat Hornet and look behind over our shoulders and watch the tails vibrate back and forth and think that was amazingly cool, not understanding that we were vibrating and breaking the tails. One of the B models in Cold Lake actually had a crack that went all the way through the spar. It ultimately led into the leading edge, the, the Lex fences that are these big metal ugly pieces that sit on the Lexes of yeah. legacy Hornets. And then the angle irons that you could buy at Home Depot that were put on the inside of the horizontal tails of the Hornets to stress their tails. It led to a redesign of the flight control system that was there to fix a mock spike and the G limiter that you and I know as Hornet babies came from that. But that is a story of fatigue that began in the beginning of the Hornet's life that stayed throughout its entire existence, which later we'll talk about in F-35 case, Alice and uh, cradle to grave maintenance. Mm-hmm. I was there when the, in my course, the first fatality happened two months in when the most talented guy we had, a patchware doing a high-low intercept on a thousand-foot T-bird target, drilled himself into the tundra at 700 knots with his head buried in the cockpit never found the body. It was our first lesson about pilot workload and the extremes that a human was expected to metabolize or understand in his cockpit, which again, later on leads to fifth gen sensor fusion. And then I was a bunch of first. I was the first Canadian to go do a live intercept. I was the first Canadian to chase a Russian bear off the coast of Newfoundland alone and scared when my flight lead aborted. 
hundreds of miles off the coast chasing a Russian bear, which I never actually saw. My squadron deployed overseas. I was on the wing of my squadron commander when he misset his trim on takeoff, leaving Cold Lake, Alberta to deploy overseas. He wheelbarrowed down the runway at 300 knots because his jet wouldn't get airborne. While we were on his wing airborne, gear up in full AB, he um, missed the cable, ejected at the end into the runway because he had misset his trim at eight degrees nose down, not eight degrees nose up as he was supposed to, which leads you and I later in Hornet life to always set 12 degrees nose up in the horizontal tail because you can't set 12 degrees nose down all because of that incident. And then I flew overseas in in Southern Germany. We replaced three squadrons of 104s with three squadrons of Hornets. I was lucky enough to go to the Tactical Leadership Program. It's a European-based interoperability coalition warfare exercise where 20 guys show up with their ground crew and their jets for about a month, and you learn to do LFEs, work together as a coalition force, and you start to understand why interoperability matters outside of here in the United States. I was the air show guy on the CF-18. I flew the CF-18 at the Paris air show as a young, scared kid in front of the biggest audience in the world, 30 years before I actually did it on the F-35, sat in the Rafale prototype and the experimental aircraft program prototype in 1987. That aircraft went on to be essentially the prototype for Typhoon. I sat on those airplanes back in the late 80s, and it was just a really amazing time as a fighter pilot. I went to the Navy Test Pilot School at Pax River. It's where I am now. And I got to see some great Navy jets, flew A-4s and T-2 Buckeyes, of course, the Hornet. I got to understand the culture wars in the United States between the United States Air Force and the United States Navy. What really was fascinating to me is it was the end of the Tomcat, or soon to be the end of the Tomcat. And Mm -hmm. the halls of NAVAIR, so Naval Air Systems Command, were Mm -hmm. populated by Tomcat front seaters and back seaters, and they really hated the Hornet. The Tomcat Mafia hated the Hornet in the beginning of its life. And yet I came back to Pax River 30 years later, and guess what? The halls of NAVAIR were populated by Hornet Mafia guys who really hated the F-35, and the same (laughs) culture wars were going on decades later. By luck, I was sent from Pax River to across the country. I went to Edwards Air Force Base in um, 1990. I was the Canadian Exchange Test Pilot at the F-16 Combined Test Force for essentially five years. I went there and I just never wanted to leave, got married, and I would have kept roots there forever. And I was a young test pilot. I got to fly in the mecca of test. I got to fly with Chuck Yeager. I got to meet guys like Scott Crossfield and listen to Pete Knight talk about going over Mach 6 and an X-15. And I got to be part of the F-16 development, that franchise program where even 25 years in, they were still doing neat things like new engines and uh, new capabilities. The highlight for me was a thrust vectoring. I was one of the project pilots on the F-16 multi-axis thrust vectoring aircraft. That's an F-16. It later had a life as Vista, a red, white, and blue F-16 at Edwards. But in its early days, it had a general electric nozzle on it. And we did 70 Alpha. We did Cobras and pedal turns. Everything that you imagine today, we did in the early 90s with that. At the same time, 
NASA was flying the F-18 High Alpha Research Vehicle, the HARV, testing thrust vectoring with a system that had paddles in the back. I was able to fly the HARV. Also, at the same time, NASA was flying the X-31 experimental aircraft that had paddles doing thrust vectoring. And I got to do BFM in a Hornet against uh, X-31. And all of that was a pretty heady time for a young test pilot to be part of leading edge research and do just the most amazingly cool things that you could ever imagine. I got to work or I was able to work in this combined test force where we Air Force pilots worked alongside the then General Dynamics company test pilots. Air Force engineers worked with company engineers. I was able to see the effectiveness of all of us working as a big team, whether we were the customer, us, the military guys, or the builder, the contractor, the guys from General Dynamics, now Lockheed Martin. And it really set a tone for me about how effective you could be as a test pilot working all together from the builders to the users. From there, I, I came back to Canada. You had Stace on your episode. Mm-hmm. Well, his older brother, Mike, was my boss, and he's the reason I was promoted to lieutenant colonel and made given a squadron. I was sent not how they do things in Canada, but different than in the past. Usually a test pilot stays a test pilot forever, but I was sent to be the CEO of a gun squadron in Cold Lake, Alberta. I went to be the CEO for a couple of years. I, uh, I loved every bit about being back in the fleet. I learned lots of lessons about fatigue life in the Hornet because I made sure my squadron trained and violated that fatigue life rule almost every month and managed to get disciplined on a regular basis by the wing commander, by the one star, by the two star, because I thought it was more important to train effectively than be hampered by the structural problems of the Hornet, which again hampered us most of our careers. It ultimately led to the high point of my career. I deployed over to Aviano, Italy at the beginning of Operation Allied Force, and I commanded a wing of Canadian CF-18s during combat of Allied Force. Our unit took virtually every combat-ready pilot from every squadron cycled through our unit over the course of combat, and we called ourselves the Balkan Rats had a little emblem that painted on the tails of our hornets. And we had this composite wing of Canadians that lived in Aviano and flew in combat. I learned some really important lessons about small nations going to war. And one of them is that you come as you are. If you're in Canada, if you're in the Netherlands, if you're in Belgium, you don't get to plan a year ahead of time to plus up and get ready for weapons to adopt NVGs what you have is what you get. And we went to war flying at night, no NVGs, lights out in essentially combat spread. If you can imagine how stupid that is, that's like racing down the interstate with your eyes closed and hoping nothing will happen because our Air Force was too myopic to get night vision goggles because we weren't foresighted enough to train early enough with LGBs we were really hamstrung in what we could do. So we learned lots of lessons about that. And then we learned about interoperability, about how seamless you could be in a planning cell when you had F-16s and Canadian Hornets and USAF F-16 guys and Navy Hornet guys. And then you would have the have-nots, which were in the back of the room with less than capable airplanes who you didn't want to put in your package because they harmed you more than they helped you. And it really was an important lesson about seamless interoperability. At the end of that combat tour, 
So now we're up to 1999. My tour ended as a CO, and I was offered a job to go fly Eurofighter Typhoon in Munich, Germany. And I uh, picked up my family and moved to Munich, and I uh, spent four years over there. I got to fly Eurofighter in the very beginning of its days. A tornado air to ground in the Tornado Electronic Combat Recce airplane. Plus, I flew F4s, Greek F4Es, and German F4Fs. We did an upgrade program cool. on the Greek F4E with an F16 cockpit and an, what you would know an APG 65 radar oh, yeah. in an F4, which was just like supreme fun. And what was interesting about Eurofighter is it was its dark days at the very beginning. Eurofighter was a fixed price contract. There were seven developmental aircraft called DAs, yet when they bought the sparing for them, they only spared for six airplanes. And they were trying to save money, the companies were, and they ended up ultimately spending their profits. What happened is you had seven prototypes with only six sets of spares, and we barely flew because we didn't have the parts we needed. And we would actually be FedExing HUD units from Spain to Germany so that we could fly a day and a half later and then FedExing that same HUD back to Spain so they could fly. Jeez. And as ridiculous as that sounded, that's how that program ran throughout its time. We never finished the proper testing. We always skipped the development that needed to be done. And it was a very unstable airplane. I say that I have a thousand strap-ins in Eurofighter in the 200 hours that I actually flew the jet over the four years. <laughs> it was a really stark lesson in compromise versus operational capability, which stayed with me for many years. It was an airplane that had so much promise. Like I was brought over to do thrust vectoring on Eurofighter, which would have made it a King Kong airplane. It was going to have a helmet kind of like F-35, a decade before F-35 or a decade or more. Yet none of those ever happened because they just ran out of money and ran out of will. Hmm. I ultimately came back to the United States, Lockheed Martin 1F35, and it was just too compelling to miss the opportunity. So in 2003, I joined Lockheed Martin. I uh, was first put on the program called Block 60. It's the F16E and F models. Lockheed built 80 unique F16s for the United Arab Emirates. In the F16 terminology of blocks, it is this Block 60 but it's the E and the F models. I call them JSF light. They have the most amazing technologies from an active electronically scanned array radar to terrain following that allows you to go 600 knots at a hundred feet to an incredible EW system to, you were a Viper guy. You remember the deep stall in the Viper? A little bit. Yeah, nasty. So for the first time ever, we had an automatic deep stall recovery mode where the system would automatically fly the pilot away from that. And it was an efficient program because it was all contractor, all Lockheed run experienced test pilots. And it taught us about how you could be efficient in a test program. And they didn't have to be bureaucratic and slow, like is often the case that what we're often blamed for. And all of that led to me being then seconded to an automatic ground collision avoidance research project you had Niels Larson on your show, episode 115, I think, when he was talking about NASA Armstrong. Mm -hmm. Well, back in the day, it was still called NASA Dryden. Niels and I and two other pilots were part of this extraordinary research team of Lockheed Skunk Works, NASA, 
Trident, U.S. Air Force research folks that matured the technology for automatic ground collision avoidance. The technologies had been worked on for more than 20 years, but they were always cumbersome. Nothing was quite right. Nothing was ready for prime time. And in a two-year program, we matured the technology, which then went into the F-16, tested and fielded, which subsequently went into F-35. And you had Cinco Hamilton talking about it when he talked about F-35. The numbers increase all the time, but we've saved 11 pilots and 10 Vipers. We've saved F-35 pilots already with it, and it will ultimately be the one game-changing technology that any of us will ever work on. Someday, you'll have it in every Cirrus, in every Gulfstream airplane, in every commercial airplane that any of us ever fly. And someday, not too, too long from now, no one will ever hit the ground again. The controlled flight and terrain will end all because of this technology that I was so blessed to be a part of in the maturing of it. And then I came into F-35 full-time. I was posted to Pax River for over 10 years. I flew all three variants, the A, B, and C models. I wanted to come to Pax River because I'd been to test pilot school here. And that leads us to where we're at now. I probably want to talk about three highlights of F-35 that are a little unique. I was Canadian and everybody assumes I grew up in the cold. So I was given the job of running the climatic chamber testing, which uh, you know, and but maybe not everybody knows, this massive hangar exists at Eglin Air Force Base in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Every airplane in the Western world, commercial and military, has been there at some point in its life. And you take an airplane from cold to hot and all the bad weather in between, and you see how it does. So we took a full-up F-35B, we bolted it on a big, huge stand in the middle of this massive chamber, and we tested it from minus 40 uh, Celsius and Fahrenheit, the same, by the way, up to Death Valley hot. We blew 100-mile-an-hour wind and rain at it. We created a, rockets of ice that we blew at the airplane. We baked it. We froze it. We hovered it indoors. We flew it with full AB indoors and lived in the surreal environment where you were strapped in the jet thinking you were flying, but bolted to the ground in all these bizarre weather conditions. And I had some fun stuff with that. I was the first one to go test it. And I remember walking into the climatic chamber thinking, you know what, if the stand that it's on breaks loose when we're trying to hover or lighten the afterburner inside a building, it's going to be a really awful way to die. It's going to be a really impressive explosion. It is thousands of degrees of heat coming out the back of this engine. And we melted these massive exhaust ducts as we first developed it. We hovered indoors. And then some fun things, like I'm a hockey player. I grew up with skates on my feet. And I didn't want to miss the opportunity. So I have a Winnipeg Jets jersey with 35 on the back of it. It says Lightning 2. I got all my hockey gear on uh, over top of my winter Canadian flying gear with my helmet on. And I brought our photographer out. In his, it was 40 below inside the hangar, like not close, but really 40 below. And I brought him out to take pictures of me with a hockey stick and hockey gear on and a hockey jersey, which I was actually okay. But he had to go to back to bare hands to operate his cameras. And he was a pretty cold dude at the end of the photo session. I managed to get locked in the cockpit of the airplane at 25 below. 
I had made a rule as the lead pilot that you had to have the cockpit open before you shut down the aircraft because breaking out of the F-35 cockpit inside a building was going to be really difficult to imagine. And I certainly didn't want in the cold days anyone to freeze. So here I was as the guy who wrote all the rules. I'd finished eight hours in the jet testing the aircraft at minus 25. I was down to a couple hundred pounds of gas, basically on fumes. And without thinking, I shut down the engine and tried to get the canopy to move and it was frozen shut. And it was likely frozen shut because it had sat there for so long as I had the aircraft on and off over the course of the day and it wasn't coming open. And so now I'm faced with some really bad options like blowing the transparency removal system and sending shards of glass all over the F-35 to ruin it forever. Or I was going to have to open the front doors of this hangar to get the firefighters to cut me out. If we did that, it would have gone zero, zero and fog, a combination of minus 25 inside the hangar and plus, I don't know, 60 degrees outside of Florida. It was all going to be bad and take eons for that, declare for them to take a chainsaw or cut me out. So without very many options and feeling pretty small and ashamed, a young engineer suggested we start back up and I try to push the canopy open as I was actuating the canopy lever or the canopy mechanism. So with like 300 pounds of gas, we started back up, we tried to superheat the cockpit. And first time we tried it, it's kind of like, now you wouldn't know this from living in California, but everybody that lives up North, when they wash their car in cold weather, the windows stick, like your power windows won't open. But as they almost break open, you can kind of hear the seal about to break until eventually it breaks open. And that's what we heard. And so uh, here I was, I could almost hear it break. So we waited another couple minutes. Now we're about ready to cavitate the engine and do damage to the jet. We tried one more time and I managed to pop the canopy open and uh, get it all the way open and shut down. And then that night, it was a Friday, I paid an enormous bar bill to the entire team (laughs) at the bar for the astonishing buffoonery of screwing up my own rules. And uh, the second highlight I'll finish or the one I'll finish with is I got to do the F-35 air show. And it's probably the thing I talk about most of all my time in F-35. You had Cinco Hamilton talk about dogfighting and the story. And the story is that uh, an Edwards test pilot did a flight control evaluation and he wrote a summary about the aircraft and its maneuverability and was flying up against a target, which was a two-seat, two-tanked F-16 What came out of that was this amazing tale of how the F-35 could not win a dogfight against a 40-year-old two-tank, two-seat Viper. And that story haunted our program for years, four years to the point that I come in. And I was given the task of developing the F-35 airshow. I was a Hornet demo pilot. Hornets does exceptional slow speed flying and does a square loop. And I knew the F-35 could do that. The F-35 has a 43,000-pound thrust engine. That's the raw brute power of a Viper. Much like the Lockheed Martin Viper show, I knew we could show off the big engine. And then it can fly at 50 alpha, and it can command yaw rates of 50 degrees a second. And that's not a Raptor, but it's close enough. And so I put those three things together, 
I did the work in our simulators, which are different than any sim in the world. Our simulators are the real deal. They are truth data. And uh, we developed this in the sim and ultimately got to go to the Paris Air Show four years ago in 2017 and for a week flew in front of that very august audience to show what the F-35 can do. The ultimate end of the story is that in a six-minute routine, we crushed the myths of 10 years of misinformation about the F-35's maneuverability and the conversation of a dogfight, and we crushed it forever. Now, you and I, as fighter pilots, know that an air show has nothing to do with dogfighting, and dogfighting should have nothing to do with fifth gen, but perception becomes reality, and that story had become so cemented in people's minds that they were never going to talk about spending billions on a fifth gen aircraft if we couldn't even beat, quote, dogfighting, unquote. And so we did it in six minutes. And people go on to F-35 Paris on on YouTube. They get to see the routine on that very first day. It was a pretty heady day in F-35 land. And that the F-35 haters stopped hating on us for about a week. We got a reprieve and then they were back at it. Today, people can see in the last couple of years, they've been able to see the United States Air Force demo, which was a follow-on to ours flown by Major Dojo Olson, and now in the last two years, Kristen Bale-Wolf flies the show. She's flying an exceptional demo routine, and now in the middle of her second season, does a brilliant job of showing off what the F-35 can do. The Marine Corps, on a few select times, has flown a great F-35B show, and unfortunately, the best show that would be flown is the F-35C which can do astonishing things, but they have not been allowed to do a full demo yet. But those airplanes are out there to show people what the airplane can really do. Boy, that's a lot of talking there, Jello, for me to just talk about my my perspective and my history. That's a new record, Billy. Uh, And I I jotted some notes down here, a lot to unpack, but that's, again, the point of this conversation today is you clearly have credibility. And I'm glad you spent extra time explaining it because you're not a Johnny-come-lately. You've been at this a long time. On that note, just real quick, so how many flight hours total and then how many in at least the top three, I guess, Hornet, Viper, and F-35? I stopped counting at 5,000, more than 80 jets. I have nearly 2,000 in A through D Hornets, Canadian Marine and Navy, mm-hmm. nearly 2,000 in Vipers, A through F, probably more than 500 in all three variants of the F-35. Wow. So just looking at some of the notes I jotted down here, now you were essentially born into the world of fighter pilot dumb. That doesn't just mean you get to become one. And I'm not so much looking for a question here. I guess I'm just addressing the young people out there that think, oh, my dad's not a fighter pilot, so I'm out of luck. Or because he is, I'm all set. And so you were raised around it, so you understood certain things about it. But when it came right down to it, you were also blessed with health right? So you didn't have a skeleton in the closet, so to speak, where you were disqualified. I mean, a lot of it is aptitude and ability, but some of it could have been out of your control had you been, for example, colorblind or had some other anomaly. So, I mean, I'm just trying to say it's not just that you're born into it. I don't ever believe there's DNA that makes someone more able to be a fighter pilot than the person next to them. There is no DNA that I got from my dad other than I grew up around fighter pilots and they loved each other. They were passionate about what they did. They drank hard on Friday nights and had hangovers on Saturday mornings. 
and they were each other's best friends. And I thought everybody loved work like my dad and his friends did, but there's no DNA. Nobody has a rite of passage. Yeah. Like you have to work hard. That's right. You have to be passionate. I watched sons of fighter pilots fail. I nearly failed in pilot training early on. I get it. <laughs> there's no, you just said it. There's no rite of passage. There you go. So if the listener's not sure who your dad's boss was, Eric Hartman, well then flog yourself and go read The Blonde Knight, where it talks about that he was shot down quite often, I think over 20 times, and on a couple occasions, twice in one day. So literally, he would go out, fly an engagement, get shot down, go find another airplane, go up and get shot down again. And that's just mind-blowing. Of course, that was a whole different type of war than we're going to talk about today with the F-35, but at any rate, just crazy. All right. So you were the first F-18 guy. You talked about the Lex fences. And yeah, again, for those who aren't familiar, it's that little just afterthought, it seems like, right above the intake almost on the leading edge extension. And the Blue Angels would paint them, you know, blue and gold. And then some squadrons would put little messages or a little logo or something on them. You talked about culture wars. I just think that that's probably part of human nature, right? Even crosstown rivals at schools will, uh, you know, get, especially when they're sporting events or whatever. But when it comes right down to it, you know, you end up on the same team. But I don't know. I just think that's human nature. You talked about the, yeah, I was going to ask you if you knew Nils, and then you said you got to it anyway, because I'd asked him about Harv and the F-16 thrust vectoring. So really amazing that you got to fly all those. You originally said you were a CEO of a gun squadron. I guess, did you just mean, because you ended up saying F-18 and that you flew the wings off them almost. So you just meant a regular combat-ready F-18 squadron. A regular operational Canadian squadron. Okay, cool. You know, we'll probably get back to your comment about come as you are to war. In fact, you have a, we'll talk about your blog at some point, but you had, I think recently on LinkedIn, an article that talks about, hey, we all think we're going to have plenty of time. And in fact, it's how we prepare day in and day out without going on too big a tangent, right? Same thing for those who believe in having things around the home to protect themselves. Well, okay, I have a safe and it's got a gun in it. Okay, great. But if the guy's at the door, you may not have time, right? So you might either need something closer or on you or under the pillow or whatever. And I don't mean to make this a referendum on home defense, but the point is you never know when you're going to need something and, and you got to be ready and you can't just pretend you're going to have a bunch of time to get ready. You know this because you've talked about it in Top Gun. You fight like you train, train like you fight. Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember where, but at one point, maybe it was on that live panel I did, but I had to ask the guy, wait a minute, how do we have 11 pilots saved in 10 aircraft? And it was informed to me that uh, I guess one of them was a two-seater. It was a two-seater. And really what's interesting about the story of Auto GCAS yeah. and all the credit to some key players in the USAF at NASA and at Lockheed Martin, it really wasn't getting traction. And what really blew it wide open was the video of a young, I think he's Dutch, a Viper pilot who blacked himself out. It, you hear his mm -hmm. IP screaming at him over the radio. It's the HUD video. Even that video was out there. We'd seen it. But when we finally got it released to one of the writers at Aviation Week who sent it out en masse to a mass following, finally people looked at it and realized there really was something there. And we started to get the buy-in to what this could really do because it's such a compelling video. Yeah. You know, he's going to die and this system takes over from him and flies him away from the ground. And the system is so precise. Yeah. Again, I flew it intentionally at rocks where if it hadn't pulled up, I would have <laughs> morded myself. 
And its threshold to take over is inside where a human could stand it. You and I could not stand to fly that close before we would pull back on our own. Yet the system will allow you to go further than that and still miss the ground every time. It's such an amazing contribution to flight safety. And now it's really getting traction out there. Good. Yeah. And I know Cinco was very passionate about it as well. And at the end of episode, I think it was 78 or whatever, we covered the F-35 the first time. I said, hey, you know, we may have to come back to that. So between you, Cinco and Nils, maybe we'll have a little auto GCAS panel at some point. We could talk about it because I think that's also parlaying into equivalent for not bumping into each other up in flight, which I'm sure is a whole different technology. And we'll, we can discuss that another time, but it's good to hear that it's already saving obviously lives in general, but not just F-16s, F-35s. And I wonder if some bean counter out there, we don't have to drop anchor on this, Billy, but you know, you save one F-35 and that's a lot of money. And of course, it's not like money shows up in your bank if you don't crash it, but just from the point of view of assets and resources, you could say it's paid for itself. And it's one of the compelling stories to the bean counters, right? Is billions of dollars in assets. Forget, and you and I could never justify the price of a human life of a fighter pilot because CFIT is an indiscriminate killer. And I've seen all the stats as I was part of that research team. It killed young guys and old guys, experienced guys in a certain jet or inexperienced day and night. You can't put the price on a human body, but for the bean counters, you can put a price in the terms of, in the numbers of billions that it saves in assets and people start paying attention. Yeah. And one of the great stories now about Auto GCAS is that uh, I credit a Marine test pilot that I flew with, Mike Lippert, call sign Latch, who wrote a paper uh, to his Marine Corps buddies about what the system could do and ultimately led to the Marine Corps committing to Auto GCAS, which in a roundabout way committed to uh, NAVAIR funding Super Hornet, and I assume Legacy Hornet, but Super Hornet to get Auto GCAS, which as I understand is undergoing testing at China Lake as we speak. And all of that to say, we need to go save lives. And there's a money part of this that helps the cause. Yeah. When I was the OPSO at the parent command of Top Gun, we had a G-lock that unfortunately resulted in a C-fit of a Top Gun student and I think it was 2013 or 14. So uh, some of the early discussions about, you know, wouldn't it be great to have this technology? We're just starting. And it's unfortunate. We can save these people. At least we can now. And so that's good. And again, we'll come back to maybe a discussion in the future on this. But all right. So quite a build up into this, but we've got plenty of time. This will probably end up being one of our longer discussions. But, you know, Billy, again, the reason you and I got to talking in the first place is there's all this controversy, frankly, around the F-35. And some of it, I don't know if it's fair. I mean, and I I guess I kind of do this myself, right? If I have a YouTube video and I give it a certain title, it gets better hits and viewing than if I just call it something boring. But I don't write articles. I do write blogs. I don't write articles for Forbes or New York Times, but I feel like they have to come up with something that's really just sensational because otherwise they're not going to get the viewership. So if you Google F-35 controversy, right, the first couple of hits, uh, here's one from New York Times, inside America's dysfunctional trillion dollar fighter jet. Here's another one from Forbes. The U.S. Air Force just admitted, quietly admitted, excuse me, the F-35 is a failure. All right, that's a fun one. The hidden troubles of the F-35 from Defense News. The F-35 may be unsalvageable from the Hill. I mean, 
come on. So you've been there quite a bit. And I guess I should mention, since you haven't yet, but you can mention it for yourself. You're not at Lockheed Martin anymore, right? So you're not representing anyone. You're not on the payroll. You don't have anyone to protect. Nobody's asking you to, to call it this way or that way. I don't even know where to begin as far as just, okay, where are we and how bad is it or how good is it? I mean, what should we believe here, Billy? Let's get into some history. And, sure. And then let's get talk. Don't let me walk away from the topic of how good it is. Okay. F 35's always been under the gun. It overpromised and underdelivered from the very beginning. And we know this story. It was a winner take all. It was Boeing against Lockheed, X 32 against X 35. And mm-hmm. you win it all. You get 3,000 airplanes. It's a franchise program that goes on for 40 years. And it's a big ticket item. And everybody wants a piece of that money. Every one of your competitors, they want that money. And for the first time in history, people are watching a program throughout its entire development and testing with a microscope, with iPhones, with instant iMessaging to Washington, D.C. And in the years when you could have a test program where badness was happening and it was difficult, like F-22, no one was at Edwards Air Force Base to watch F-22 struggle through their seven years of seven days a week as they struggled to get stability with the avionics and make fusion work and get the airplane working. In the case of F-35, every time we land, all the world knew what had happened immediately. And so we had the whole world looking at us in a microscope. Mm -hmm. The program wasn't racing ahead as promised in the beginning with lots of stumbles and hurdles along the way. And every time we did something well, it was two steps forward and then one step back the press has always been salacious. We learned to get a pretty thick skin talking with the press. You learned to be very careful about how you spoke to the press. You were always honest, but you didn't need to tell them all the baggage about how yesterday's flight went because it probably wasn't relevant and it was going to blow up in your face anyway. And then you needed to fix the airplane Mm -hmm. and get it working to take away those stories. And they come and go now. I think me as someone who was the global spokesman for F-35 for a long time, I learned to be open kimono. And at some point, the reporters didn't find it salacious anymore. Those that followed the story would ask you the question. You'd give them the honest answer. You'd tell them the hard truths about what was working or not. And they understood the airplane as well as anyone. And it stopped becoming interesting to write about. But then you cycle reporters and they're back in again talking about something salacious or someone misstates something or is not mm-hmm. had not thought what, what they were supposed to be intending to come out the way it did, and it blows up in their face, as has happened recently. Is the airplane as good as promised? Ask every single man or woman that flies it in a large-scale exercise or has already gone to combat or who has trained in operational missions and flies it now around the world, and I bet you you won't find a single soul that would go back away from F-35 because they've come to believe in its effectiveness, its lethality, and its survivability. And it's starting to earn legs. It has really turned minds around of the operators of the air forces that use it. Israel, it's, it was quoted as saying, in legacy airplanes, you adapt an airplane to the armed forces. In the F-35 case, you adapt the armed forces to the F-35. And I think that's pretty telling There's nearly 700 airplanes out there now. There will be by the end of this calendar year. There are 11 nations that have flown this thing day to day. There are almost 2,000 guys who have flown the jet. It's pretty astonishing what has happened with this airplane. And 
it is getting so mature that the stories kind of dwindle away, but they're salacious, right? Yeah. Everybody wants, that's a big yeah. ticket item. So yeah. if you're Boeing, you would certainly want a piece of that pie and you'd rather build more super <laughs> hornets than give money to Lockheed Martin. Yeah. And so every time you screw up in Lockheed Martin or the program, every time you have a hurdle, every time something doesn't quite go right, you can expect a salacious headline. Yeah. And I will say in defense of the program today, the people that overpromised in the beginning, whether they were military or in the contractors, they've long since moved on. There is a humility that comes in this program and has been for the last decade where people realize if you don't deliver, if you don't drop the price, if you don't get a hold of the cost per flight hours, then this program will end and it won't become the 3000 aircraft franchise that everyone wants. And so you really do have to deliver mm-hmm. even today. Well, that seems to be the standard anyway. We were supposed to have, what, 700 and some odd F-22s. We were supposed to have so many B-2s. Nothing ever seems to play out the way we think. So I don't know if that's just standard or what. But So let's go back to the beginning, Billy. And again, we'll probably spend quite a bit of time on this discussion, but this is good stuff. This started back in the 90s, I want to say. I mean, I can't imagine the technology existed back then for the dream that they had. So we kind of know the ending, although we're close to the ending. We're not really at the ending, but we have a very capable aircraft now. Sure, it took a lot longer and it costs a lot more than I think maybe they predicted. Was it a good idea in the beginning to not only have an aircraft with the requirements that they stated, you know, did the technology exist, but also... Was it a good idea to have one aircraft for the three different requirements? Because it started, as I understand, with the Stovall, but then they said, oh, wait, well, we'll give you a replacement for the F-15, or maybe, I'm not sure which one, but so we'll have an Air Force version, we'll have a Navy version, and trying to do everything technology-wise, but also in one airframe, was it a good idea just from the beginning? You and I were going to talk about this, so I contacted an, an old friend, a guy I have great respect for, Tom Burbage, who ran the program when it was still an X-plane program through to early in F-35 to remind me of the history. There were operational requirements documents written to talk about what the projected warfighting requirements would be, not talk about the technologies, but what you would need to fight a future war. And that led into a program called the Joint Advanced Strike Technology or DAST program, which was then going to identify the technologies needed to build aircraft that could achieve that warfighting capability. Fifth gen is a product of $50 billion and 20 years of research work and laboratories to create the technologies that you now see in F-35. And they include things like fusion, but they include the three bearing swivel nozzle, which is the nozzle that makes the short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft work. They are the technologies for electric driven actuators, not the old hydraulic systems that you and I know from a Viper and a Hornet or an Eagle. They are the technologies that advance the radar capabilities, the electro-optical targeting systems that enhanced fusion software for sensor fusion that worked on advanced stealth coatings. Those 20 years of research all fit in to where we get with F-35 to build airframes, one, two, three different types, that need to fight those wars. I think the one recurring theme that we'll come back to throughout our discussions of how hard F-35 is to do is total software integration. 
in old federated airplanes, and a federated system is, is an eagle or is a hornet, is a viper, you had a radar box and a TACAN box and a radio box, and they were all separate and distinct, and they would have gone into a computer that meshed it all together, a mission computer. And if you want to fix the radar, you do a radar software fix, and then maybe there wouldn't be a change to the mission computer itself. You just make the radar better. F-35 is a place where everything's connected. And if you change one thing, you change everything. And the software integration of that is an enormously complex effort. You can't just upgrade an app on your iPhone and hope that everything will work. Because when you upgrade that app, it changes the iOS itself. So every time you change software to improve something, the level of regression to make sure you get it right before you put it back into the next software load is enormously complex. And you can't cheat the process. You can't hope that a simple software change will work because hope is not a process. And so when you understand, and as we learned the hard way, we learned about the difficulty of software integration throughout this airplane, that became the toughest hurdle throughout all the development of all the technologies that go into F-35. Could you build one airframe to do all three? I bet you it never happens again in history. But then I question... Did we really need special airplanes? Can't a multi-mission airplane do what Hornets did or what Vipers did at the same time? Build one that can land on a boat, build one that lands on normal runways? Because what we care about today isn't how fast we go, how much G we pull, whether we are good slow speed or whether we're a better rate fighter. What we really care about is situational awareness, low observability, and being able to execute the mission. I want range. I want persistence. I want to be able to see everything. I don't ever want to be seen. And I want to kill or neutralize every adversary every time and come home. And, and I think you can argue that that can all happen in a single airframe. Yes, there's a Stovall component of this because clearly Stovall drove a lot of how the aircraft ultimately looks. But then again, if I said to you, give me a clean sheet design and build a stealthy looking airplane, Go look at a Korean fighter or the potential Turkish fighter, and they look pretty. Oh, by the way, China, they look pretty F 35 like. <laughs> yeah. Go look at the Su 75 mock up <laughs> that was just released at the Moscow Air Show. It's kind of looking F 35 like. So yeah. I don't think we can blame the Stolva variant on every part of how F 35 looks. It was designed to fly fast in that treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Hold on, Billy. I want to interrupt because, so you have some experience in this and I, and I want to see if I'm right. So you flew the F-18 for Canada. Did you ever land on an aircraft carrier? No. Okay. So then you flew the F-16. 
right? So then when you were a squadron commander of the F-18, I want to ask you, did you ever have any issues with landing gear where you thought to yourself, this is really unnecessarily complex landing gear, and it would be a whole lot easier and cheaper to fix if it was like the F-16? Because the F-16, as we all know, is not built for the carrier. It's got little stilts, frankly, uh, but you also flare to land. Now, the F-18, you never used the landing gear for what it was designed to do, and yet you had to repair it, fly it around, carry it. It's heavy. It's expensive. So I guess what I'm getting at, and I don't mean to be as agitated as I suddenly sense I'm being, but the point being is you had equipment on your F-18 that you didn't need, but it was one model built for all the different things. Was that ever a hindrance to you or an unnecessary expense? Look, I used to lower the launch bar on the starting procedure in my first five years flying the Canadian Hornet. And the Canadians never gone on a boat. We had no idea what we were doing, but we had to exercise the launch bar. The procedure, yeah. <laughs> and we had lots of planing link failures because of the faulty landing gear design of the original F-18. Mm-hmm. And Canadians love the Hornet. They love pounding it on. They love the hook to do arrested landings, you know, approach in arrestments instead of the far end of the field. And so they believe that it was worth that. That's a lot of weight to be carrying around when I never needed it. Like a lot of weight and a lot of problems that we encountered. And you'll remember this as a Hornet guy, the rolling surface rudder interconnect that no man's land from 120 to 80 knots. When you land and you better not touch or get in the loop or you're going off the side of the runway, it ultimately killed guys losing control directionally or, and it almost did so many times. All I'm trying to say, though, is I'm trying to make an argument for is a one aircraft fits all approach a good one? Because invariably, someone like you, as the CEO of an F-18 squadron that never went to the boat, has to deal with the compromises of that one design in the example of the F-18. And you really do. So let's back out and say, do I mind having a F-35 A, B, or C? And I flew all three variants. Right. You know, the only difference was takeoff and landing between all three of them. Really? Sorry, there's a gas difference between the B and the A, a little bit more with the C. But otherwise, they're the same jets. And I could accommodate with the C model landing on the boat. But otherwise, you know, they're pretty much the same airplanes. And if I could have that much commonality, I'd make them all do the same thing. Because in the end, what I really want is seamless interoperability. I want Dutch F-35s to fly with Danish F-35s, to fly with Brit F-35s, to fly with Italians, to fly with U.S. Air Force F-35s, where we all have metal. We all can't be seen. We all can fly fifth-gen tactics, offensive, and be effective instead of being hampered because one can't quite talk to the other, because one can't be on the same network. I want that interoperability. And if the small compromise is my landing and takeoff hardware is a little different, then I can probably live with that. All right. Again, I suppose it would be like saying every family should have the same car, right? Well, some families have more kids than others. Some live in rugged areas, some live in snow and others don't. And so I guess I'm not necessarily taking a side. I'm just suggesting maybe it's okay that we have different types of aircraft. But I think what you're saying is, but the capability of this is so good, it makes it easy to overlook some of those other features. But just jumping ahead, so right, then there was a, was it this year? Maybe last year. But anyway, the Air Force Chief of Staff said something like, and this is his quote, actually, I want to moderate how much we're using those aircraft. You don't drive your Ferrari to work every day. You only drive it on Sundays. And so I guess 
he's making an argument perhaps that, well, we still need some of those other aircraft, even though they're not going to maybe share the same information or be as capable, or maybe I'm misunderstanding what he's saying, but a fleet of just F-35s, now maybe for Canada, and I know you do some writing on this, maybe that's okay, but for the United States, is just an F-35 going to be enough? Yeah, and so let's split the question. because so <laughs> The chief of staff is a remarkably sharp, strategic man. I would hope. He walks into the piranha feeding frenzy of the press who take everything he says and go off on tangents. Right. And every other nation. So let's take America away from this just for the first part of it. When you're Danes, when you're Dutch, when you're Canada, you get to buy one airplane and you're going to keep it for 40 years or 50 years. That's it. You get one airframe. You barely got enough money to buy the airplanes. Weapons are a secondary purchase for you. All you care about is how many airplanes you can put on the ramp. And it's the Swiss army knife of airplanes is what you need to adapt to manage war fighting now. And for the decades to come where you can't possibly project what you are going to need. And you're going to want an airplane that grows over time and can work with other airplanes because warfare is never done alone anymore. It's always coalition warfare and interoperability matters. But we're in the United States where we have the biggest military in the world. We project power around the world, whether it's naval air forces on a big deck carrier or the Marines now on amphibious carriers with F-35Bs or the biggest, baddest air force in the world with the astonishing capability of the United States Air Force. And you do get more than one airframe. And maybe putting it all in a single pot isn't the best economy of scale. But then there's an argument that says, Where's all your money going to go? And one of the best examples is a United States Marine Corps major general. And his story is he was standing on the ramp on one side of the ramp back in the day, prowlers, growlers, and harriers. And on the other side of the ramp were F-35Bs. And he looks on the one side and says, I'm going to replace those three fleets and all the training systems for those aviators for those three fleets, plus all the infrastructure and sustainment And instead, I'm going to spend my money on that single airframe there, train my aviators to fly that single jet with the single sustainment and sparing system. And for him, the cost benefit and the capability that the F-35 was going to bring made the discussion simple math. Mm -hmm. It was going to be more effective and cost-wise, a smarter move to have the F-35. There is a discussion now about F-15EX. By the way, let's never question A-10s and CAS. We all get it. Like that's, that's off the table. But do you want F-15EX? The promo pictures show 22 missiles on an F-15, which is incredibly impressive, except it's over the max gross weight. So you can take off with 22 missiles and half fuel load, or you can take off with a full fuel load and not quite those missiles. Do you want that for Homeland Defense or some other role? If we in the United States are taking on the two biggest threats, one across the Pacific and one across the polar ice cap, then we certainly do not want to lose our fourth gen assets, no matter how well they are armed, because they are not LO platforms and they won't survive against LO adversaries. That's the one question I would always have to the war gamers. Tell me how long they're going to live in a full out World War III scenario, which is what we train to in the United States, right? We train against a Pacific threat. Hmm. The Navy certainly is concerned with it. And in North America, our concern is the Russians coming over the polar ice cap, coming down at us in North America. Will those fourth gen assets 
as good as they are. And that new F-15 is a fabulously capable airplane, far beyond what the legacy gray Eagles were. Will it survive against an LO airplane, which will have, they will outnumber us and potentially outstick us, meaning their missiles will outrange our missiles potentially. Yeah. And that's my question. And I don't have an answer for that. LO means what again? Low observable. So uh, an F-35, an F-22 is a very low observable airplane. A mm. Super Hornet or a New Eagle is a low observable airplane. The radar cross-sections, the observability is measurably different one to the next, but a VLO platform is a fifth gen platform. Billy, so this program has been touted or maybe derided as being the most expensive military program in history. And so, like you said, right, we've never been more hyper-connected as a society, as a world than we are now. So every little blemish of every little thing that happens is seen. It'd be like if you lived in a home where, and I guess certain families like the Kardashians do, I don't know, I've only heard of it, but right. But so if there were cameras in, in the Aiello household, you would see me doing all kinds of stupid things and ugly things and idiotic things. We see all that, but does that really change the story? Because like you said, the F-22 had that. I'm sure the F-18 had that. We talked about the Lex fences. I'm sure the F-16, the F-4, the F-14. I mean, how different is the F-35 from the point of view of growing pains then just since, let's say, the F-14, and how much of that is just that we're just that much more connected? It's funny. There's a reality TV show. Remember Big Brother where there was cameras in the household and there's this communal society of guys and gals living and uh-huh. everywhere someone went, there's a camera watching them. And that's really what F-35 is. <laughs> yeah. We don't move without anyone seeing us. And you can be sure that back in the day, in the F-16 world, by the way, they got hammered when you go back in the archives and look at their development, all the problems they had in the early days when they were losing airplanes left, right, and center. Go back to read archival stories of the F-18. It was a New York publication, not New York Times. That at one point, 1983, they called it fat, slow, and ugly, and no mission. <laughs> yet, yet here we are so many years later, and we all love what the Hornet has done for the Navy, for the Marine Corps, and in Canada and Australia. Yeah. F-22, seven years of seven days a week when they couldn't get the aircraft stable. They went from a projected 750 to 380 to 187, if that's the number. National assets now, treasured assets, super expensive because they never built them in the numbers they expected. I flew Eurofighter in the darkest of days. I was one of the early pilots, and I discovered a divergent pilot-induced oscillation during refueling one day that made it crippling, and you weren't going to be able to refuel the airplane. It ultimately led to the complete design of the flight control system years after its first flight, but you never heard about it because the companies and the militaries wouldn't let the press find out anything about the airplane because they knew the bad press would take away their funding and the political support. And so they were terrified of telling the truth. There were going to be 120 B2s, and ultimately there was only 21. Mm -hmm. Every time you flinch, you risk the long-term funding of these airplanes, which drives us backwards to look for suitable airplanes instead of having the capability that planners and strategic thinkers had looked for. And that's still the risk with F-35. So let's try not to do the same mistakes as F-22. Let's try not to get the program cut. And you do that, by the way, 
by involving 46 of 50 states in manufacturing the F-35. <laughs> People call it political engineering. Yeah. You get the, the support of congressmen and senators that won't allow the program to be cut so that it can eventually mature and be as good as we expect it to be. But as you said, yeah. Hornet had yeah. major, major problems in the beginning. We killed guys in Canada yeah. one a year in the beginning, hitting the ground with this airplane. We called it a plastic jet, but it wasn't. And we didn't understand what it needed to do. And we weren't ready for the problems that it had. The Viper had so many problems in the beginning. History talks about the Eagle and so many problems. Yeah, they called it the Lawn Dart, right? They did. And, you know, you bought an acre of land yeah. in Germany back in the day. It was a 104. And then you waited for an F-16 to crash in there. Now, so many years later, we all love the Eagle. It's extraordinary. We, I'm a Viper convert. I love the jet so much to fly. And I'm a Hornet baby like you are. They earned their right to be there, but they had very storied histories. Look, the C-17 had a really difficult time in development. And I was at Edwards Air Force Base at that time. When it was deployed to Charleston, it sat on the ramp and didn't fly for so long until eventually they sorted out the problems. And now you and I can't imagine any military not having a C-17. The C-130J was going to be a 6 month developmental program. It was just like an upgrade to the engines and they were going to fix the cockpit. Ultimately, Lockheed paid a billion dollars and a billion dollars later, they matured the C-130J and now none of us can imagine doing without a C-130J. Every aircraft in history has had major developmental problems, but look, we're under a microscope. It's the iPhone day. And here's the analogy I give. I'm betting, I'll speak to you and your peers, that you would not have achieved the rank that you retired at had there been iPhones or YouTube videos back in the day (laughs) at the O Club with the antics. So you heard, huh? The (laughs) alcohol-fueled things. And I certainly would have. And that's really the case now. Look, it's iPhone days. It's instant news. You have oversight that was never, ever the case in any generation previous to this. Okay. So here we are. Billy, you and I recording on August 12th, 2021. And I don't know how many billions of dollars have been spent to this point. And I can't remember how many we had, although I think you dropped it a bit ago, a few hundred at this point, or how many platforms are flying? Almost 700. It'll be 700 this year, 670 plus now, okay. building 130 this year. So pretty soon we're past 700, we're at 800, we're at 1,000 soon. Yeah. The cost will keep going down. That's just simple math as we build more and more of these. So for where we are right now today, has it been worth it? For all the effort, for all the costs, for what we have, has it been worth it? Is it worth it? You're a fighter pilot podcast and you have aviators and aviation lovers that listen into. Here's a measure of success. The first time that the F-35 went to red flag, Marine Corps unit went there still early in its days. The advertised exchange ratio for them was 20 to 1. 20 of them win one loss. And the real number was 78 to 1. Your best day, I'm guessing, and certainly my best day ever as a fighter pilot, I came out 2 to 1 against my adversary. That was, I thought, so amazing. These guys come home and they're better than 20 to 1 against the best adversaries in the Western world as their competitors. It's domination. And that's what's happened everywhere the F-35 has gone. And now imagine we're that many years further on, we have evolved the training of how we train fighter pilots in the F-35. The Marine Corps has revolutionized how they train fighter pilots. 
and here's the example, and you'll get Chip Berg to, to pitch in and talk about this. You and I, and everyone since the Red Baron, had a flight lead and a wingman, and you followed your flight lead. And in a four-ship environment, you had a guy in charge, and then a, number three was a deputy lead and another wingman. And the wingman's job was basically to follow the flight lead around and do what he's told with really no authority and not much responsibility. In this day and age, we train F-35 pilots to be independent decision makers as young wingmen. If they do not contribute and think autonomously to contribute to the survivability of our foreship, then we're all putting ourselves at risk. And we empower them like never in history, in the history of fighter aviation, we put these guys and gals with responsibility to go out and execute and kill the adversary because they are so effective that if we do not do that, we are wasting the opportunity, the power, the true power of what an F-35 can do. What's the measure of success? It's survivability at numbers that we've never seen before. And it's effectiveness Mm. that is changing the game of aviation warfare. We didn't see it in F-22. And I think that's because they only built 180 something of them and it never got to critical mass. But look, uh, there's F-35Cs out on the Carl Vincent now, a first operational deployment. I bet you if you checked with your Navy buds and people were candid, they talk about being pretty impressed with what the C model is doing on the boat. And I know from my contacts in the different air forces and certainly in the United States Air Force, how this jet is changing warfare like you and I remember. Remember, I'm a fourth-gen baby. I'm the original Canadian Hornet Mm. baby, and I don't belong in a fifth-gen fighter squadron. The fifth-gen babies, the ones that have no other training but an F-35, that's all they know is stealth, amazing situational awareness, complete domination of a battle space, video game addicts that they are with left and right platinum thumbs. Now watch what they can do with this airplane. And then ultimately, I think that answers the question, is it worth it? And the answer is we dominate an F-35. We, the American forces, remember I'm an American citizen, we dominate now because of F-35 and F-22. That I think speaks to whether it was worth the cost and all the pain and development. Billy, I want you to imagine now, if you can, please, an alternate universe where we go back to whatever the day was, I don't have it in front of me, that the decision was made that the X-35 was the victor of this competition. Imagine for me that the X-32 had been selected. Now I want you to give me a history lesson from that day till now. How similar is that universe to the universe we lived in? Is that even possible to answer? I mean... Nope. No, no one can answer, but I can tell you that it would never have happened. We're Americans... We don't buy ugly jets. <laughs> There's an old adage that says, if it looks ugly, it flies ugly. And yeah. God help me, that was an ugly airplane with huge performance problems like anyone that's ever seen the show X-Planes knows about. Boeing is as capable as Lockheed Martin is at building airplanes. And it's not that they wouldn't have the engineering talent or that you wouldn't have had the armed forces behind them. I don't know that they would have been any better with the struggles Boeing's having a hard time these days between 737 MAX and two horrible fatalities, being unable to field the KC-46, which essentially is 767 with boom, and can't get past that. Mm -hmm. Now a one-year delay in T-7. I think the problems at Boeing are no different than you would have seen at Lockheed Martin. But God help us, it was an ugly airplane. There is no way in God's green earth we (laughs) Americans would buy an ugly (laughs) fighter like that. And I think that's probably my end Uh, answer to it. 
let's remember that we got through F35 testing, 10 years of the formal testing program, SDD. We never lost a jet. We didn't hurt anybody. We got to the end of it and had to rebaseline somewhere along the way. It is in the test world a remarkable success in terms of how complex the aircraft is, how hard sensor fusion is, how difficult it was to build and develop three variants, and to get through there at the end of it all without losing an airplane. Look, Typhoon, we lost a jet early on, a two-seat prototype of a Spanish-owned in one of those never, ever, ever could happen possible scenarios where they had a double-engine flameout and lost an airplane. They lost Hornets in the beginning. Oh, F-16s, huge problems in the beginning. Yet, we get to the end of F-35 and never lost a jet. And I, I think that, in a sense, is pretty impressive. Earlier, when you were talking about developmental problems of new technology, I was also thinking about the uh, MV-22, or I guess just the V-22. Uh, if you recall, it also had quite a bit of developmental challenges until the technology caught up. So, all right, Billy. Hey, so I want to talk about the future of the aircraft, but I also have uh, some listener questions. I told them that I was going to be meeting with you and with your experiences, and I said, hey, let's keep this somewhat strategic because I feel like the conversation that Cinco and I had was fairly tactical. We talked about weapons and performance and all that. So if you don't mind, we can kind of call this a lightning round if you'd like. But one of them is uh, from John Clark, who says, how much does the F-35C benefit from the larger wing? And does this offer an increase in combat capability in areas such as combat radius, sustained and instantaneous turn rate, weapons carriage over the A and B variants? And before I let you answer, I want to bring you back to one comment you made, which is you're looking forward to the flight demo of the C, even though it's not out yet. And I'm curious why, and I'm guessing it ties into John's question. I love flying the C model. I spent most of my time in the first and second prototypes. The one you see in the pictures have the blue and yellow lightning bolts on the tail, CF1 and CF2 <laughs> here at Pax River. It was the wing that was meant to be on that aircraft. When you turn it, it's like carving a snowboard in powder at Vail, Colorado. When it takes off, it's like being on an escalator. And when it lands, it lands so slow, you feel like you're in a Zeppelin. Uh, so what does it have? It's got ailerons. It's got a larger tail hook and a launch bar. It flies with that wing so much better than the other variants do. Hmm. 20,000 pounds of gas in the C model, so 2,000 more than an A model. When you put it down at a cruise speed, it'll stay on station forever and ever. And that's what we care about. We care about loiter or persistence from the boat or even a land-based it has an amazing flight control system for getting on the boat. We call it Delta Flight Path or Delta Path. You've heard it in the Super Hornet called Magic Carpet. And it's this incredible improvement to the flight control system that allows an aviator to basically point a dot in your helmet and the aircraft adjusts for wind and everything you need to to fly essentially almost hands-off and land on the boat. And their boarding rate in the F-35C is astonishingly good. I'm a land-based guy, so I've never been near a boat, right? They're national assets. You wouldn't let me fly near one, but their boarding rates are through the roof, and that's because of the wing. I don't think there's much difference. It's in, in the noise between instantaneous and sustained turn capabilities. They're all the same, but clearly it's a smoother wing. Okay. Why the air show is better is because of that wing. So the maneuver we developed, you've heard us talk about the pedal turn for the F-35 air show. It's 
Yeah. You go vertical and then bury the stick and come over the top at 50 alpha skidding over the top. And then at 50 alpha, you pedal turn around left or right at 50 degrees a second yaw rates, then you fly away. And that pretty much stuns everyone because the only other aircraft in the Western world that can do that is a F-22 and he's got thrust vectoring and we don't. But in the F-35C, you would do a figure eight. So a vertical figure eight. And at the top of that figure eight, then you'd bury the stick and you'd spiral down two or three times before you'd actually have to recover. And I promise you when the Navy guys are able to actually do that, they will stun audiences to see an airplane be able to be that capable and then fly away. So I love to see everything about it is the wing that was meant to be on the airplane. Okay. Joe Kunzler is another supporter of the show. He's been with us a long time. He's always got good questions. He wants to know why there's no two-seater. And just thinking back to, again, the description of this system, we obviously made compromises for, I'm sure, the naval variant. They would have loved to have two engines. There's other things that people had to give up. But I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to answer Joe's question for you. Did they just figure that with technology being so good, they didn't need a two-seater? There's no need for someone else to jump in on first couple flights. That wouldn't be the first aircraft that didn't have a two-seater. I mean, the Tomcat is only two-seaters, but there was no flight controls in the back. It's precisely the reason there's absolutely no use for an IP, an instructor pilot, in the back seat of an airplane that's so incredibly simple to fly okay. and mm-hmm. where our simulators are so advanced today that the sims that we train in, they're the real deal. They're truth data. And so once you jump in the jet, the guy in the back, he's just taking away gas that I need for something else. The other part that's important, because you've talked about F model Super Hornets and two seat Super Hornets, there are missions in legacy airplanes where you really needed two people to manage the workload. You needed someone to manage weapons and fly the jet, but you needed someone in the back to understand the whole picture of the battle space and try to digest what was happening. Thus far in the missions that are projected for F-35, it was always intended that a single person could do this. And that paradigm shift that moved the workload away from two people to one and made it manageable for one person really started with F-22. And that's what sensor fusion was intended to do. Sensor fusion in the Raptor was meant to take all the extraordinary amount of data and digest it, filter it, synthesize it, prioritize it. And what you see on screen is the real deal. And it's either good guys or bad guys. With precision and fidelity of that information, there's no indecision. It is that that's a real guy, it's a real guy. And we'll tell you how many sensors applied the equation to convince us that's the real guy. From that point in Raptor, it goes into F-35 with a different sensor suite so that we believe in fusion. And I don't want someone else to have to communicate with because when I look down or when that fifth gen baby looks into that cockpit, he or she will understand everything in front of them and it will be given with a precision that makes you essentially smarter in your cockpit than if an AWACS would be able to contribute to your SA. And so I don't think you need two people for the mission sets that are projected for F-35. Two people aren't going to help you in that jet. It's meant to rely on fusion, which leaves it a one-man job. What about doing FAC A in an F-35? Did you ever do that in an F-18, by the way? And is there any discussion about doing it in the F-35? Well, and the whole notion of being a FAC and, oh, by the way, CAS, and, oh, by the way, the difficult jobs of what a growler will do are places where, and you know from your Navy experience, I think there's maybe a place for two. 
All right. Robert Hosterman says, is the F-35 capable of automated mid-air refueling without pilot input? That's an interesting one. It is. And the F-35 is the easiest airplane to refuel probe and drogue that I've ever done. In my experience is F-5s to even an A-7 tornado typhoon. Wow. Oh, by the way, the F-16 that we modded in the UAE for an India campaign that had probe come out of the conformal fuel tank. And then obviously uh, F-35 Bs and Cs. It's the easiest airplane to refuel on. Hmm. We actually tried a program in the development to try to automate or call it cruise control equivalent for F-35 refueling. We kind of missed a couple variables and it turned out to be not as easy as we thought. I think, and you did lots of probe and drogue, it's not easy. And there's just so much that compounds that difficult task when on a turbulent night, the dynamics between your airplane, the probe, the tanker itself, I think it's going to be a long time till we can automate that in a probe and drogue scenario. Yeah, I can't imagine it. All right. Scott Morris, who helps out with the show, says, for the F-35B and C, how is aerodynamic heating during supersonic speeds not taken into account during the design phase? Does having these limits affect the mission capability or effectiveness? Building off this, how come it's not an issue with the F-35A? But can you remind us before you answer what the issue was in the first place? Brutal. Scott actually did his research and <laughs> on the B and C. There was reported a restriction that was added, a time limit, and a mock limit on how long you could sustain yourself at high Q, if you will, because of heating a potential damage to the horizontal tails. Think of the God's eye view of an F-35A, B, and C. They're all different at the back end. The F-35A and B have the same horizontal tails, but the nozzle for the B is shorter because of the stovel component of that. Okay. And then the C has a bigger horizontal tail, but the same nozzle as the A. The problem is when we spent, and we spent here at Pax River, significant time raging around at 1.6 Mach at 700 knots at full afterburner for five hours at a time during mission day after day, we found that the excess heat on the outside of the afterburner plume did potential damage to the horizontal tail services on the inside of those tails. Hmm. And we would come back after a mission. What test pilots do after a mission is they don't walk into the bar. They actually walk around their airplane to see what damage they might have done. And I would go back after a mission and look at to see if there was damage to the horizontal tails over the sustained repeated exposure of these test jets we found that if you left them there for day after day, for hour after hour in full afterburner, you could damage the tails. The program was faced with a decision. Either you did some extravagant, elaborate, different manufacturing to the tail, or you evaluated, is there a tactical utility to flying around for hours on end in full AB at 700 knots or 1.6 Mach or 630 knots in a B model? We couldn't understand what the tactical application would be. Nobody is going to, except for the 25-year-old, is going to take an F-35, plug it in AB, and rage around for a full tank of gas for an hour just to see how fast they could go. There's no tactical application. And oh, by the way, raging around supersonic with afterburner cooking, heating up the leading edge surfaces of your very low absorbable airplane with a Roman candle in the back with 43,000 pounds of thrust and a massive afterburner makes you no longer stealthy because everybody with an infrared search and track system can see you and your glowing hot airplane coming at you. 
So you've given away all your radar cross-section advantage, all your emission control stealth advantage, and you've highlighted yourself with AB going super fast and making your leading edge services fast. And we ultimately, in the tactical and operational environment, decided that putting time limits and mock limits on the airplane where you can still rage around fast, you just can't do it for a whole tank of gas, would be the mitigating factor so we didn't have to redesign the tails. Could you imagine 43,000 pounds of thrust in a Hornet, Billy? Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think you'd said it. <laughs> you went to 1.7 because you, you know, dived down from super high altitude. And then I think 6.5 was the best I ever got, yeah. And I never saw more than 1.6 in a Hornet. It just wouldn't go there. And I always <laughs> wanted more power. And you were a Viper yeah. guy. But the Navy guys are known to have purportedly gone 900 knots back in the F-16N days mm-hmm. in Vipers. Apparently, there's a video out there of that. Uh, we always wanted to go faster. Give me 43,000 pounds in a Hornet, and I could have gone 1.7 Mach. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah, you know, when instructors leave Top Gun, they often leave a gift of some sort. And one of them, I forget his name, left a framed picture of four shots of an F-16 HUD. And I think it was an F-16N. And one of them was at 9Gs. Okay, you know, no big deal. But one was at like Mach 2.1. Another was at 70,000 feet. And then another was at like 1,200 miles an hour or something. I forget what the last one was, but at low altitude. And and the point I think he was trying to make was, you know, you got to have the right aggressors, which is a whole different story we could have another time. But you have to have the right adversaries and aggressors to get the right training. And of course, it's funny because now all the things that he did and they were all, you know, looked at over the glasses or over your nose or whatever the expression is, because of course, they flew the wings off those F-16Ns and they didn't last very long. But on the other hand, they gave really, really good training. So... That must have been the heyday is to fly those things. But I got two more questions for you. Let's talk about the helmet. Wesley Quinlan says, at startup, how would a helmet malfunction be handled since it is unique to that particular pilot? But I guess I'll take a stab at this, Billy. I got to think these days there are no such things as helmet malfunctions, but maybe that's a little naive on my part. So the helmets individually scanned, laser scanned each of our heads. You have to take time to focus it for your head and your eyes. You can't just throw on somebody else's helmet. It's not going to work for you. It'll function, but it won't be comfortable. And you probably won't get both eyes seeing out of each ocular to see where you're going. Mm. If my helmet didn't work and my head's down, so on the down displays, there are really four portals you could look at. I can always call up a HUD format that looks like a HUD did uh, heads down on any other airplane. And I can call out up an electronic flight instrument that will give me a attitude indicator plus a compass like an hsi equivalent and i can fly all the mission i would need to okay and then use my other two portals or turn them into one big display and still have my tactical display i wouldn't ground abort for a helmet malfunction i think you're going to go to war like that the helmet's fabulous we all love the helmet we would never fly without it but it's not that crippling that you would cancel a mission you're just going to go heads down and fly that way okay well, I was trying to take a stab at thinking maybe you were going to say, oh, it's so good it never fails. I mean, that, again, that's silly. Nothing never fails in military aviation, but is it pretty reliable? I, I assume you flew most of your flights with it. It is. And I would say it essentially always works, but never say never. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I deliberately saved Blaine Hodge's question till the end because I know you've got a, a dog in this hunt, as it were. Canada is currently in the process of selecting its next fighter to replace the legacy Hornets. For the F-35, one major advantage is integration with U.S. and NATO interoperability. However, outside of that, 
what are the biggest advantages it brings to Canada's defense of our national interests in comparison of its other competitors, especially in regard to our northern and oceanic borders? And then the second part is, on the flip side, what would be the biggest challenges or disadvantages that Canada would have with the F-35 in contrast to the rest of the fighter pack, either in the air or on the ground? Keeping in mind, we have a military that must make the most of limited resources and budget. I would say all of them do, Blaine, not just Canada's. And we have a huge land area to cover and have roughly 80 legacy Hornets currently in service. So I did read a little bit of your LinkedIn blog, if you will, the other day. I think it comes down to, well, do we want yesterday's airplanes or today? And, and I don't mean to disparage any of the other contenders, but short of some of the things we're seeing coming out of China and Russia, like you said, and Turkey, and I think even the Brits unveiled something recently, but you really have yesterday's aircraft and you have today's. Is that essentially the approach you take? You do. And, and I think the problem with Canada, and it really applies to all of us in America, Canadian defense matters to us in North America. Yeah. The back fence of us in North America is unprotected. And that's the Arctic of Canada. It's just enormous, vast territory that has to be patrolled. So if you and I look north towards the Arctic, we know Alaska on the left side on the west has F-22s and 48 F-35s at Fairbanks, Alaska, F-22s are at Anchorage. And then there's nothing going across the Arctic all the way to Greenland where potentially the Danes would deploy F-35s. In Canada, there are only two runways suitable to handle fighters. One's in a place called Inuvik, which is kind of near Fairbanks, kind of near its relative term in the Arctic. And then further way out east is a place called Iqaluit, which is for those who know their geography at the top of Hudson Bay. So way, way far north of upstate New York. And you have to have an airplane that will patrol what is the backyard of North America. Because if you're Russians, you're not coming over Alaska to attack us in North America and take out our infrastructure. You're coming right over the polar ice cap, right into Canadian territory and shooting cruise missiles from there. So if Canada cannot protect North America with fighters that have the range, the persistence, the sensors to see adversaries, the stealth to not be targeted themselves, then we have no protection here in the continental U.S. And that's why it all matters to us even in America. Now, in Canada, it's a never-ending debate. It's just the most horribly run procurement campaign in history. And I mean that from the manufacturers. We have colossally failed to sway the opinion of 37 million Canadians why they need a fifth-gen airplane vice a newer version of the Hornet, which they love so much. There's an ongoing debate of single engine in Canada because they're worried about airplanes eating birds in the Arctic. But you and I have flown at 30,000 feet. There aren't a lot of birds up at 30,000 feet, which is where an F-35 lives, not rooting around down low like a CF-104 did at 200 feet in the fun days of flying. Mm -hmm. Look, you get one airplane, you get it for 40 years. And the Hornet's this amazing adaptable airplane that did so much in Canada from my early days when it was either going to be NORAD or NATO defense strictly to evolving into a true multi-role airplane. It was at the beginning of its life cycle. And so it could grow over time. If you say to me, well, okay, we'll buy Super Hornets or Grip and Ease. The Hornet originally flew in 1976 the Super Hornet first flew in 1995. And while the Block 3 Super Hornet could be capable, that is likely the last upgrade of its lifetime. And if Canada bought it, you'd be saddled with an orphan fleet 
for the next 40 years because the Navy will keep the Super Hornet going. It's an important bomb truck and an important contributor to onboard the boat. But there's investments going into F-35C and now into 6th gen and uh, next generation air dominance. There's not money going into there. Mm -hmm. And it is like my blog said, it's the analogy of, do you want an iPhone and upgrading with a billion users and interoperability? Or do you want a Nokia flip phone that's the best Nokia flip phone ever, but pretty soon you're not going to be able to fix a screen and you can't do your banking on it and you can't fix it when it breaks. And here we are faced with, do you get an F-35 that's interoperable with NATO that you can use to go to war? Or do you saddled with an airplane that is tactically irrelevant pretty quickly on? Now, the problem between the United States and Canada is we're two nations separated by a common language. The problem when we talk F-35 in Canada is for many years, we didn't speak Tim Hortons English. Most Americans don't know what Tim Hortons is, but it's like Dunkin' Donuts. It's the ultimate Canadian franchise. It's a donut shop that is in every square of every community everywhere in Canada. And you speak Canadian English there, right. not American English. We failed to explain to Canadians over 15 years why they needed a fifth-generation airplane instead of a fourth-generation jet. I'll finish by telling you that there's an amazing unclass brief. It used to be classified. Now there's an unclass version, and I can speak about it because it was given out in public in Canada a couple months ago. And it talks about the campaign war, if you will, between fourth gen, 4.5 gen, and fifth gen versus our adversaries. And they could be across the Pacific or over the polar ice cap. And it's a a campaign war. So imagine we start out, we're outnumbered by the bad guys and we got super hornets or 4.5 gen fighters. And how do we do? And basically the campaign analysis done by the US government ultimately says that we get slaughtered on our side and they win. And then the next version of it says, okay, look, we get super hornets, but then we're going to get fifth gen assets. We're half and half. How do we do? And we, the blue guys do better, but we still lose. And then the final version says, okay, look, we're fifth gen guys up against the Russians and the Chinese. They come with their best airplanes with impressive missiles. How do we do? And for the first time we win. That campaign analysis is a really telling story that says, we're not going to survive with a 4.5 gen fighter against our adversaries whether they're flying J-31s or J-20s or Su-57s or Su-75s in the future. Mm-hmm. If you don't come with a VLO asset, with a fifth-gen asset, you're not going to be there after the first couple of days of the war. And that, to me, leads back to the Canadian story, which is ultimately about survivability. And that's why you come back to the conclusion that an F-35 is what you probably need. Well, it sounds like someone's got to beat the bushes and get the message out because if folks aren't aware of it and all they think is, oh, look, we already have this F-18, so if we just get a different version of it, we can keep a lot of the supply chain or the training or whatever, but they're really missing the point. And, you know, these conversations, they're not just quick headlines or sound bites, right? I mean, there's deep discussions here. And that's why this one's been a little bit more like a Joe Rogan interview, Billy. It's been just talking about this <laughs> stuff, going deep and it's good. And I hope that people will live through this and enjoy it and, and make smart decisions. Because again, kind of coming back to the point that I made at the beginning is if someone wants to sell their article, then they give it a fancy headline and get everybody all agitated. And that just seems to be the MO these days. So 
All right. Well, hey, why don't we, uh, again, I'm sure we could go for a long time, but let's think about wrapping up. But, you know, the F-35, like we said earlier, we are where we are. And I think it sounds like to me, you're not one who's going to hide the trips and falls we've had along the way. But for where we are now, if I may summarize for you, it's worth the money because it redefines the nature of air warfare going forward. And we can't afford to be outclassed in this. So what is the future for the F-35? I mean, we're going to obviously incrementally improve software and flight logic and weapons and all that, but nobody has a crystal ball, I realize, Billy. But from your vantage and your experiences, are we going to build all that we're supposed to build? And do you see the incremental improvements to weapons and flight controls and software and everything else improving for the next 40 or 50 years? I think there's a real chance that this could become the franchise program like the F-4 was, like the F-16 was. But I th- also think there are threats there along the way. Mm. They're called sleeper stakeholders, people that come into power or come into a positions of authority in military defense programs that don't know the history of this program and don't know why it was built the way it was. And so they'll be happy to lop off spending and all of a sudden you're not buying the airplanes you want. I think this airplane's around to stay. It's been over the major hurdles. It has convinced so many of the military forces that fly at R3 services, but also around the world that... It's got a lot of staying power, not that it's out of trouble. Here's what it needs. We're flying around in a fifth-gen platform, dropping fourth-gen weapons. Why in God's name are we dropping a GBU-12s, 500-pound laser-guided bombs, where I'm in a fifth-gen VLO platform, and I basically have to fly over the target to guide my bomb in there, a laser-guided bomb, and you remember doing that. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing that in an LO platform? And why am I not dropping a long-range, very precise air-to-ground weapon, like small-diameter bomb twos, by the way, or other advanced platforms, so that I don't have to put my LO platform at risk. Why am I still shooting AMRAMs with the relatively short range they have? And why am I not shooting Meteor or even better missiles or faster missiles from long-range? Because putting the LO platform at risk puts all of us and survivability and our effectiveness at risk each time, depending on the stealth and not being seen instead of using this aircraft for their standoff and taking advantage of the amazing situational awareness we have. I think that's the place where this aircraft will make its money over time. I wouldn't want to walk away from one of the risks, and that is cyber. Okay. For the first time in other than American aircraft history, these nations are flying full-up platforms, spy planes, and you're gathering terabytes of data every time you fly. In the American services, we understand how to manage highly classified programs. But if you're in those other nations, this is a completely different revolutionary concept. Managing that data, managing the intel that comes from an F-35 over time sustained is critical. And everybody can talk about cybersecurity, I had my Coinbase account hacked and Coinbase couldn't explain to me why all my money was suddenly gone in two minutes out of my account. And they are supposedly have a business model based on cybersecurity. For everyone out there, if you hack an F-35, you get 10 years or 15 years of technology advancement stealing our technology. And so the cyber risk for us, I think, is more acute than in any other program in history. And I think that I think that's the biggest threat to that program in the years to come. 
All right, Billy. Well, this has been a marathon discussion. I've really enjoyed it, but I think we'll better wrap it up. We've talked about the future of the F-35. What about the future for you? So you're done at Lockheed. I saw a little one pager that suggests you do some speaking. And what about some writing? I mean, you've got a wealth of information. Have you thought about a book? I know you do some blogs. Really, Jello? Have you been talking to my wife? Who's just <laughs> no. browbeating me badly because I haven't, <laughs> haven't started writing. <laughs> a couple of things I do. I help companies introduce advanced technologies and adapt them to fifth gen. I, I explain to them what to do and, and how to make them work in this environment. I am talking about a life, I term it a kinetic life of 40 years of flying, of flying fighter jets. And what you and I would have learned flying and what I certainly learned to keep me alive in those decades are life lessons that apply to everybody on the street, not just CEOs, but 97% of the population, things to do day to day and under pressure that I learned as skills that apply to everyone else's world. And so I do speak about that and and I do have the task of uh, writing those lessons down. And then finally, and you alluded to it, I have a pet peeve and it's about technologies on billyflynn.com. And we'll talk about Billy, why it's spelled IE in a minute billyflynn.com, I try to make fifth gen understandable. I have a bone to pick in Canada because I, my dad was a fighter pilot and I was a fighter pilot for 23 years. And, and I want them to pick the right airplane, but I certainly have failed to convince Canadians how to understand that language. And so I write about fourth and fifth gen iPhones versus flip phones and one engine versus two in that blog that people can look up. And that's my pet project that I do on my own. Mm that's what keeps me busy. It's writing and looking into the future. For the record, I wish I could take away my 14-year-old's iPhone and make him use a flip phone because I think uh, he'd be better (laughs) off, but that's a different discussion. All right. Well, Billy Flynn, I mean, Billy, I don't even know. I hate to admit it. Is that your real first name or is that a call sign or where are we at? We, you know, we always end with call signs. Well, my grandmother wrote it, Billy with an IE at the end. Look, you have explained to all your uh, listeners so many times about how you were in call signs. Mm -hmm. I'm at the top of the list of buffoonery. I nearly ran out of gas, you know, in an airplane. It's like on fumes. I was in a crash. I think I have the all-time over G record in the F5 of nearly 12 G from (laughs) astonishing mishandling and buffoonery as a young lieutenant. And I have my share of alcohol-related Friday night idiocies that would have earned me a call sign. But Somehow nothing stuck. Part of it was probably those years in the Canadian Air Force. And maybe I was just lucky and there's no iPhone videos around of it anymore. But Billy is what it is. And it's what I've been known (laughs) for for now that many years around the world. And and that's what it's going to be. And I don't want a bad one. So I'm pretty okay with just calling me Billy. It sounds like there were so many, your peers couldn't choose one. See, yeah, like, have one. you ever been Just to the supermarket? <laughs> exactly. You ever been to the supermarket? There's like 40 different types of spaghetti sauce. I'd never know which one to get. Now, if I go in and there's four, I can pick one, but, but there's too many. Oh, dear me. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Billy. And uh, I guess I feel like I understand the F-35 because... I've talked to folks like you and Cinco and Chip Burke, and I understand that, you know, again, the folks that need to get viewership or clicks or whatever have to be sensational, but kind of like what you're trying to do in Canada, I wish we could just tell people to shut up and sit down and this is the weapon system that we need. And yes, it hasn't been perfect to now, but it's pretty darn good. I mean, is that a decent summary of the last couple hours here we've been chatting? (laughs) Absolutely. I think you've said it better than I can. All right. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Jello, thank you so much for having me along. I really enjoyed the talk. 
You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components or industry partners. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.